0: By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash gps. netsuite.com slash gps.
1: This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria. Today on the show, Susan Rice, President Obama's national security advisor on how the Trump team is managing world affairs. North Korea, Russia and more. And she'll answer the White House's extraordinary accusations against her. Also, the U.S. sets off what some call a trade war with Canada. Canada has been very rough in the United States. And the president ponders pulling out of NAFTA then decides to stay in. I'll try to make sense of it all with Canada's foreign minister, Chrystia Freeland and forget the first hundred days about the next 265. To me, the president's first year is the most important milestone. A great group of scholars joined me to discuss what we've seen and what we can expect. But first, here's my take. There are so many unusual, unprecedented aspects of Donald Trump's first hundred days in office that it's hard to know where to begin. By his own yardstick of what he would do on day one, The number of promises unfulfilled is staggering. But more striking than the policies unfulfilled are those that have been reversed entirely. Never in the annals of the presidency have there been so many flip flops so fast with so little explanation. Trump announced his many reversals cavalierly as if he surely could not have been expected to know the facts about them six months ago when he was running for president. As he said in late February, nobody knew health care could be so complicated. I suspect that the next education will be in tax policy. Trump's proposals outlined this week are breathtakingly irresponsible. They would add trillions of dollars to the debt and are not even designed for maximum stimulus impact. Abolishing the estate tax, for example, which is paid by 0.002% of Americans each year, would not cause a rush to the stores, but it would cost the federal government $20 billion a year in lost revenues. The larger education of Donald Trump, and education one would hope of his supporters, is that government actually isn't easy. The appeal of Trump for so many was that he was an outsider, a businessman, who would bring his commercial skills and management acumen to the White House and get things done. Washington's corrupt politicians and feckless bureaucrats would see how a successful man from the real world cuts through the fog. Instead, we have watched the sheer incompetence of Trump's first 100 days. Executive orders that can't get through courts, bills that collapse in Congress, agencies that remain understaffed, ceaseless infighting within the White House, and the constant flip-flops. It turns out that running a family-owned real estate franchising operation is not really the same as presiding over the executive branch of the United States government. It turns out that government is hard and complicated. While there's plenty of corruption in Washington, the real reason so little gets done these days is that the American people have wildly contradictory desires. For example, they want unlimited amounts of health care, don't want to be denied such care because they're sick, have pre existing conditions and yet expect that costs should plummet. They want government out of their lives, but revolt at the prospect of any slight cuts to its largest programs, Medicare, Social Security, or the removal of tax benefits for health care and home mortgages. This condition has been building for years. In a 1995 book, Michael Kinsley explained what he saw as the roots of the then raging populist anger at Washington that Newt Gingrich had exploited with his contract with America. He wrote, American voters make flagrantly incompatible demands, cut my taxes, preserve my benefits, balance the budget, then explode in self-righteous outrage when the politicians fail to deliver. He titled the book Big Babies in honor of the American people, and he opened it by quoting Alexis de Tocqueville. The French under the old monarchy held it for a maxim that the king could do no wrong, and if he did do wrong, the blame was imputed to his advisers. The Americans entertain the same opinion with respect to the majority. Let's hope that the greatest education of the Trump presidency will be that Americans come to realize that Washington is dysfunctional not because of the venality of politicians alone, but rather because of the desires of the people they represent. For more, go to CNN.com slash and read my Washington Post column this week. And let's get started. Let's get right into my conversation with Susan Rice. She was, of course, President Obama's ambassador to the United Nations before becoming his national security advisor. Susan Rice, welcome back to the show.
2: It's good to be with you, Fareed, thank you.
1: So let me ask you first, um, Donald Trump now says he thinks there is a chance of a major, major military conflict with North Korea. Um, Do you think this is a bluff or is he signaling that the United States could actually go to war?
2: Well, what I hope he's doing, uh, Farid, and it's hard to know exactly what he's doing, I hope he's just giving an assessment uh, of the fact that that remains a risk albeit hopefully not a high risk uh, of direct conflict. He did say in the same statement that he very much hopes for a diplomatic solution. North Korea is obviously one of the very toughest and most pressing problems we face and we've seen a lot of bellicose rhetoric uh, out of the administration Um, but after a considered policy review it seems that their policy course that they've chosen is much the same as it has been for several years. We need to maintain the economic pressure and the sanctions on uh, North Korea and ratchet that uh, the sanctions regime up to the greatest extent possible, which is what Secretary Tillerson, I think, was trying to convey in the Security Council on Friday. Uh, we need to enlist the Chinese to the greatest extent possible to exercise their leverage and influence. That's something we've been working on for many years and it's something that President Trump has I think, correctly uh, emphasized as an appropriate course. We need to reassure and um, uh, secure our allies, particularly South Korea and Japan, uh, who feel most directly threatened by North Korea. And there, I'm concerned, frankly, that we're hearing very mixed messages. On the one hand, a message that South Korea's security is something that we will stand up to defend. And on the other hand, the president in the same interview uh, that, that you quoted from, uh, said that we must neg- renegotiate the free trade agreement with uh, Korea uh, and that the South Koreans must pay for the missile defense, uh, the THAAD system uh, that, uh, that we are installing, which was not the deal. The deal was they'd provide the land and, uh, and the installation, and, and we would uh, provide the system and its operations. So this is created along with the miscue on the aircraft carrier a great deal of unease in South Korea at a time when we ought to be providing reassurance.
1: One of the f- uh, elements of fallout from Russia's attempt to influence the American election uh, was that uh, th- there was there a was certain amount of uh, intelligence work being done uh, on Russia. Our intelligence agencies were listening to what Russian government officials or uh, Russian intelligence uh, officials were saying. Uh, Donald Trump has accused you of trying to unmask the Americans on the other end of those conversations in an attempt to implicate the Trump uh, campaign or uh, people associated with Trump uh, in in some kind of collusion with Russia. What is your reaction to that? It's an extraordinary charge by the president of the United States.
2: Well, Farid, it's absolutely false. Uh, I've addressed this uh, previously. Uh, I think now we've had subsequently members of Congress uh, on the uh, intelligence committees on both sides of the aisle, take a look at the, the information that a- apparently uh, was the basis for uh, Chairman Nunes's concern, and, and say publicly that they didn't see anything uh, that was uh, unusual or, or untoward. I did my job, which was to protect the American people, uh, and I did it faithfully and, and with to the best of my ability. And never did I do anything uh, that uh, was uh, untoward with respect to the intelligence I received.
1: One more question about this. Uh, The administration now says that it is the Obama administration's fault uh, that Michael Flynn got through unvetted or or not vetted enough. Uh, That it was on on your watch that he he retained his top secret security clearance despite... The fact that he had received money from the Russians, what do you
2: say? Fareed, I'm smiling because that, that's rich. L- let me explain how this process works. First of all, a former uh, military officer uh, such as General Flynn, who wants to retain his security clearance, would go through a process with his uh, home agency, in this case the Defense Intelligence Agency, to have his clearance reviewed and renewed. That happens at the, you know, a, a very uh, routine level. Uh, never uh, at a political level. But that's a very separate thing, the renewal of a clearance from the vetting that goes into the appointment of any senior White House official or any senior administ- administration official. The Trump administration, like uh, its every previous administration, had an expectation and an obligation to vet to their satisfaction those individuals that the president was appointing to high positions, which is a separate and much more elaborate process than a security clearance. It gets into the financial information, it gets into your relationships and contacts, uh, it gets into your behavior. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a much deeper vet uh, than what is uh, done solely for the purpose of a security clearance.
1: But you do you do see the point of what they're doing, which is every time there is some accusation, uh, there is a counter accusation, which in a sense throws up a lot of smoke and seems to be effective.
2: I noticed you that. Agree?
1: <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> Fareed, yes. Uh, it, much of this seems to be uh, an effort to distract and deflect from uh, perhaps their own shortcomings or from the larger issue that, that I think all Americans are very concerned about, which is what did Russia do? uh... in its process of intervening and manipulating uh... the u.s. election in in 2016 why did they do it and with whom did they do it and uh... was there uh... any uh, suggestion of or evidence of coordination or collusion this has to be dealt with responsibly thoroughly and on a bipartisan basis as a threat to our very institutions and democracy and to the extent that we are not united and approaching this in a bipartisan fashion, we are enabling our adversaries like Russia to exploit our divisions, and it's very, very dangerous.
1: Let me ask you a general question about Trump foreign policy so far. How would you characterize it?
2: Well, I think, obviously, uh, Farid, it's only been uh, just about 100 days, um, so it's early days. But I would say that in many respects it's been unsteady uh, and rocky. Um, And by that, I would point particularly to the fact that a number of our closest friends and allies are feeling uh, uncertain, uh, off balance, um, unclear as to where we stand and what we mean. The United States, Farid, is supposed to be the grown-up at the dinner table. We're we're not supposed to be the crazy aunt in the attic that nobody knows uh, what is going to do next. That that unpredictability may be useful to somebody like Kim Jong-un in North Korea. It's not the way the United States is supposed to act, and I think our allies uh, have been off-balance and and uncertain in a way that doesn't serve our interests. We've also had very mixed signals sent. Uh, The words coming out of the administration, even um, on the same day by multiple officials uh, on consequential issues like our position on Syria, for example, um, are often at odds, and I think it, it uh, it leaves the world uncertain as to to what we mean. And then finally, I'd point to the fact that, uh, very unfortunately, uh, many of the most important jobs in our national security apparatus remain unfilled, and not even just unfilled, but no people selected to serve in those roles, whether in the State Department or the Defense Department uh, and and many other places. And and that means that we are dealing with a complex uh, and complicated world with uh, with less than um, all of our cylinders firing. And that's unfortunate and it it needs to to be rectified. So I I think there are many aspects of of what has transpired that uh, we need to do better on. I I hope we will do better on. I think some of the the shifts in in policy, as I suggested earlier, um, have moved us in a better direction. Now we are recognizing and supporting our NATO allies as as critical, not obsolete. Uh, we haven't upended our uh, very complex and, and uh, important relationship with China by embracing Taiwan and jettisoning the One China policy. Um, you know, we we are uh, we are seeing some writing of of some important uh, policy courses, but in a very um, rocky and and unsteady and I think uh, unstable way.
1: Susan Rice. Always a pleasure to have you on.
2: It's good to be with you again. Thanks so much.
1: Next on GPS, the Trump administration was accused this week of trying to start a trade war with Canada, of all countries. I will talk to Canada's foreign minister when we come back. It was a rather extraordinary week in North American relations. It all started on Monday when the Trump administration slapped its first tariffs on imports from another nation, Canada. Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross accused Canada of bad acts and said it's been a bad week for U.S.-Canada trade relations, but helpfully offered that he wouldn't regard the Canada situation as being anything like the war with ISIS. Oh, good. Then on Wednesday morning, sources told CNN that the White House was considering withdrawing from NAFTA. But Thursday morning, Trump tweeted, I received calls from the president of Mexico and the prime minister of Canada asking to renegotiate NAFTA rather than terminate. He said he had agreed, but if a fair deal wasn't reached, he would pull out. What's at stake and what's going on? Oh, just $1.2 trillion in trade. Joining me now is Canada's foreign minister, and in her prior life as a journalist, a frequent GPS guest, Krista Freeland. Welcome back to the show, Madam Foreign Minister.
3: Great to be with you, Fareed, it's a real pleasure.
1: Um, so first, were you given any advance notice of the, the, uh, the, the decision to, uh, to slap those tariffs on, uh, on Canada?
3: Yes, absolutely we were. Um, It's important for Reid on the softwood lumber dispute to get this in historical perspective and in perspective in terms of the overall trading relationship. Softwood lumber is something that Canada and the United States have been talking about since the 1880s. So this is not a new discussion between Canada and the United States. It's very familiar. It's also softwood lumber is just 2% of Canada's overall exports to the United States. Now on this particular issue, I have to respectfully say we think the administration is completely wrong. Uh, we think those duties are punitive and unfair. In all of the previous disputes, Canada has won at every single international tribunal. We've won at the WTO, we've won at NAFTA. And what's even more important for me, and here I'm going to quote the Wall Street Journal, known as, I think, a conservative publication, quite friendly to the Trump administration. They called these tariffs on Canadian lumber a housing tax in an editorial this week, and they warned that these tariffs were going to hurt the very middle-class voters that supported this administration. I couldn't agree more, and so I really hope that we can come to a quick and amicable resolution on this. You guys need our lumber to build your houses, and we want to keep selling it to you.
1: All right. Now on that uh, phone call between Justin Trudeau and Donald Trump, uh, what did Prime Minister Trudeau say to Donald Trump that convinced him not to pull out of NAFTA?
3: Uh, well, the prime minister and the president have a really strong, mutually respectful relationship. Uh, I was there at our bilateral meeting in the White House uh, on in February, and I have to say the two really got along. I think what the prime minister said is, you know, he really pointed out the extent to which the Canada-U.S. economic relationship is one of the best economic relationships in the world. It's a real win-win relationship. What many Americans don't always fully appreciate is Canada is the single biggest customer of the United States. You know, for you devote a lot of time on your show to China, quite rightly. But the United States sells almost twice as much to Canada as it, is to China, as it does to China. And what I think the prime minister said is he really pointed out to the president, we have a great relationship, let's not let a couple of irritants get in the way. And what he also said, which has been the position of our government from day one, is we are ready to sit down at the NAFTA negotiating table anytime. We, By our count, we've made nearly a dozen modifications to NAFTA since it first came into force. And we absolutely agree this agreement could be modernized and made better, more appropriate for the 21st century. So let's roll up our sleeves and do it. The holdup actually right now is in the United States because the TPA process means we need to take, you need, the Americans need to take a little bit of time before they join us at the table. But we're ready to go. And I do want to say to the president and to the U.S. administration, we're really glad you made the right decision. I was glad to see the president saying that he believes we can get a great deal. I believe that too. And we're ready to start
2: talking.
1: Now for our What in the World segment. On Friday, April 21st, Taliban insurgents dressed as Afghan soldiers maneuvered their way into a military base near Mazar-e-Sharif and killed as many as 140 unarmed Afghan soldiers who had been praying at a mosque. A few weeks earlier, on February 9th, the top U.S. commander in Afghanistan, General John W. Nicholson, told Congress that the U.S. needs a few thousand more troops in Afghanistan. That's on top of the 8,400 American troops that are already there. Haven't we heard this before? Send more troops, drop bigger bombs? Is that the answer? According to several studies, as of 2016, the United States has spent almost $800 billion in Afghanistan. And more than 2,200 Americans have lost their lives fighting on Afghan soil. And yet there doesn't seem to be much to show for all that. According to the U.S. Inspector General, the Afghan government has been steadily losing ground to the Taliban since 2015. By November of last year, the government controlled just 57 percent of Afghanistan, while the Taliban controlled or contested 43 percent of the country. Afghanistan, nicknamed the graveyard of empires, has often bedeviled foreign military interventions. Alexander the Great was nearly killed there. The British were defeated and exiled almost 100 years ago, and the Soviets saw many thousands of their troops killed by the Mujahideen before they too withdrew in defeat in 1989. In 2014, President Obama declared that the combat mission in Afghanistan would come to a responsible end. American forces returned home with just a token force remaining behind. But since then a revitalized taliban and al-qaeda have found safe havens in neighboring pakistan where they've launched military and insurgency operations against the afghan government which is largely seen as corrupt and mired in tribal conflicts the noted regional expert barnett rubin writes in a recent essay that the united states now faces three choices american forces can leave afghanistan entirely in all likelihood The Afghan government would quickly collapse and the Taliban would once again seize power. Or the United States can maintain an open-ended military commitment in Afghanistan. That seems to be what we're creeping toward now, with American troops engaged in a prolonged, unwinnable stalemate with the Taliban. But a third choice would have the Trump administration focus not on sending in more troops and dropping huge bombs, but rather on bringing peace to Afghanistan through diplomacy with its neighbors. These regional players, China, Russia, India, Pakistan, and even Iran, are all developing strong economic and political ties with each other. Each has reasons to see Afghanistan stabilize and prosper. In this scenario, the United States supports the democratically elected government of President Ashraf Ghani, allowing him to negotiate from a position of strength with his neighbors and with the Taliban, which does find support from the Pashtun majority of the country. The Secretary of Defense, James Mattis, once remarked that if funding for diplomacy was cut, then I'll have to buy more ammunition. The truth is all the bullets in the world won't solve the problem in Afghanistan, but some creative diplomacy just might. Up next, everybody else has been talking about the first 100 days. But I think the thing to really talk about is the next 265 days. I have a great panel of scholars to talk about what Trump will accomplish in his first year. There's been a lot of ink spilled and a lot of hot air expelled this week over President Trump's first 100 days. I do agree with the president on one thing, perhaps just one, that the 100 day marker is not that important. The more meaningful time period to look at is his or any president's first year. After a year, electioneering starts up again and presidential power begins to wane. So to help me look back at the first 100 days and ahead of the next 265, I have a great panel of scholars. Joining me here in New York are Tim Naftali, a CNN presidential historian, former director of the Nixon Presidential Library, and now someone who teaches at NYU. Shirley Ann Warshaw, professor of political science at Gettysburg College. Tim Snyder, professor of history at Yale, and the author of the bestseller, On Tyranny. And in South Bend, Indiana, Matthew Kranig joins us. He is an associate professor of government at Georgetown. Um, Shirley Ann Warshaw, let me ask you, we we talk about 100 days, of course, because of Franklin Roosevelt. Um, Why, What what is the importance of it? Good question.
0: Franklin Roosevelt thought that in that first few months of his administration he could dramatically change the course after the Great Depression. Um, Congress had been completely unable to do it. We were in an era of congressional government and now he saw that his role as the new executive would be to take the reins and run with them, but he would have to craft the legislation that Congress had been completely unable to do. And it's that movement forward we now see that the powerful executive we see now actually has its roots.
1: Uh, Tim, when you look at it, other than Roosevelt, has anyone really had a, a, a powerfully successful first 100 days?
4: Well, you know, if you think about the signature achievements of some of the more iconic presidents, they come after the 100th day. Ronald Reagan's tax cut, 206th day. Barack Obama's Obamacare, 368th day. And. The stellar performance by John F. Kennedy in the Cuban Missile Crisis, that comes in the 634th day. And those are the events that really shaped their presencies and their legacies. So um, I think the, the 100-day standard is not helpful at all. One thing I'd, I'd add um, is that Roosevelt himself didn't think in terms of 100 days. He was ready to ask Congress to leave after the fifth day after he passed the banking legislation. It's his, people around him said, you know, this is amazing, this momentum. We should just keep doing this. And so they, the Congress stayed. He had called Congress back for a special session. So even Roosevelt didn't know he was in the midst of something remarkable for a president. And frankly, for the presidents who followed, the first 100 days haven't really mattered that much.
1: Um, Matthew, to me, what's striking about this first 100 days is certainly in historical terms does strike me the number of reversals. Uh, I may be wrong, but I cannot recall any president who has reversed himself so fast on so many fronts, so effortlessly. Is that good or bad?
5: Well, I guess I'm not sure if I see them uh, as reversals. You know, uh, this is an unusual president, first president we've had without experience in political office uh, or in the military. Uh, so he made some um, kind of broad statements on the campaign. And I think once he's uh, come into office, then it's been up to his team a really excellent team he's built, uh, to kind of uh, put details uh, on that. You know, so he's talked about uh, renegotiating NAFTA, uh, and now you know, Pence and others are talking about how they're going to update it to account for the Internet uh, and other things. He's talked about getting rid of the Iran deal. Uh, some of his team has talked about how, how we could look to renegotiate the Iran deal to extend the sunset provisions. Uh, so I'm not sure if they're reversals or if they're just uh, amb- ambiguous things that were set on the campaign trail, and now we're starting to see some flesh on the bones.
1: So let me ask you just directly, for example, China. China, he said, was going to be labeled a currency manipulator on day one. He said it had been raping the United States, that he was going to put a 45% tariff on it, uh, and that perhaps Taiwan should be recognized as a country. Um, as far as I can tell, he's reversed himself on all those things. No? those are just details?
5: Well, the currency ma- manipulation, I-, I think you're right, that there has been uh, a change there. And he's also said that... Um, North Korea has become more of a priority, uh, and so rather than getting tough with China on trade or, or other things, he wants to work with China uh, to try to put pressure on North Korea to solve uh, the North Korean issue. Uh, so you know you campaign uh, uh, in, in poetry and, and govern in prose, uh, and so again, I think we're starting to see uh, some of these policies be filled out a little bit with these new reviews and as the personnel falls into place.
1: Tim Snyder, you wrote a book um, where you worried about Trump implicitly um, as being somebody who was almost a threat to American democracy, not just the issue of changes in policy here or there. What have you learned in this 100 days?
6: I've seen that a number of his challenges to American institutions seem to be rather close to core beliefs. He talks about the judiciary as president much the same way as he talked about it as a candidate, scornfully. He talks about the free press much the same way now as president as he talked about it as a candidate with contempt. So we're looking at a situation where someone who we have no particularly good reason to believe cares about American institutions, is in charge of American institutions. So when I contemplate the first 100 days, I think less about legislation in a way that's both too much and too little to expect from this team. I think more about the way in which this person has not adjusted himself to what we thought were the basic norms of American political life.
1: Fascinating. We're going to have to take a break. Panel, please stay there. Viewers, stay there, too. We will be back to talk about the next 265 days when we come back. And we are back talking about Trump's first 100 days and next 260-some-odd with Tim Naftali, Shirley Ann Warshot, Tim Snyder, and Matthew Kranig. Tim, when you look at the tax bill, what does strike one is that Trump does, for all the populist rhetoric, and, you know, there's a little bit on trade, he's governing more like a conventional Republican. He appointed a very conservative, socially conservative Supreme Court justice, and this tax bill is essentially a kind of classic supply side tax bill. We'll slash taxes, it'll mostly uh, help the rich, but it'll trickle down and somehow growth will pay for it all.
4: Well, you know, um, when you look at at Trump, uh, you should compare him to other presidents who have had both houses of Congress. It's not fair to compare Trump to... So, if you do that, it's remarkable how little traction he's getting in Congress. Um, The Obamacare repeal and replace fiasco, taught us a lot about the inability of, of Speaker Ryan and Donald Trump to actually fashion a governing coalition. So you look at tax the tax cuts, we'll, yes, in, in some ways he is, but in some ways um, he is actually going to upset his base because a number of, most of the core um, objectives of his tax cut policy will benefit wealthy Americans, not the people who put him in, in power. What I'm looking to see in the next 100, 200, 300 days is the extent to which the Republican Party, the party in Washington, decides what party it is. Is it going to be, is the Freedom Caucus going to have a veto power or not? What about the moderates? Are they going to try to fashion themselves into a governing Trump coalition? Because ultimately, until the midterm elections, should they change the control of Congress, it's all up to the Republican Party. It's the Republican Congress that's going to decide the legislative side of the, of the Trump years.
1: Matthew, uh, when you look at this from foreign policy terms, do you think that Trump is morphing into a traditional Republican and that in that sense, you know, a lot of the America first nationalism uh, will, will adjust itself to... Uh, the kind of uh, foreign policy that clearly most of his key advisors seem to, s- seem to support based on their past statements.
5: Yes, when Trump talked about uh, America first, I never uh, heard that as America only. Uh, you know, I, th- I think there were many people who thought that the United States needed to do some things to get its own house in order and that if the United States isn't strong at home, it can't be strong abroad. Uh, Richard Haas, president of the Council on Foreign Relations, wrote a book along those lines a couple of years ago. Uh, So I guess I do see uh, the United States under Trump continuing to play the international uh, leadership role that it has played. And I think we've seen it already do that since the inauguration. Uh, President Trump was willing to use force to uh, enforce the red line over Syria, uh, reestablish the norm against chemical weapons use. Um, You know in the Middle East more broadly he's been willing to increase the tempo of operations against ISIS after bipartisan calls to do that for many years. Um, He's talking about supporting the the allies. Uh, So I do think that many uh, Republicans are are, uh, happy with the direction that President Trump's foreign policy is is heading.
1: Tim Snyder, do you worry that this kind of talk is normalization or normalizing Trump?
6: Yeah, that's one of the problems with the whole hundred days conceit because it's about legislation and executives storming ahead with ideas black and white on paper. I think this president has to be judged in a different way by the fact that We now have family members in office, and that seems normal. We now have advisors who are members of the extreme right. We take that as normal. We have an ongoing investigation, multiple ones, about speaking of foreign policy, about the role of Russia in getting this man elected. Those things are not normal, but they've become normal. And in a way, we need to have a daily asterisk by everything so we don't forget them.
1: When you look at the... the, um the kind of atmospherics. This is, a, this is a president for whom images are very important. I wonder, you know, is the, is the purpose of the Trump presidency to create great policy, or is it to create a series of stories and images, uh, the carrier deal, things like that, so that, you know, in three years he'll go back to the American people and say, look, I did all these amazing things. Watch the video. Right, uh, right.
0: Well, first of all, presidents really can do a lot, <clears throat> excuse me, with executive action. He can sign an executive order that wipes out NAFTA, essentially, that overturns the Iran nuclear deal, that deals with climate change. He can sign executive actions that, to many of his base, do what they want him to do. To some extent, the legislation is secondary. To move forward a tax bill is absolutely the easiest thing that he can do. He has a Republican House. He has a Republican Senate. Um, They... Tax cuts are the best thing for any Republican Congress, but that's about all that he's going to be able to do. So what you're going to see is these minor, uh, these changes by executive order with lots of flash, which is exactly what you're saying. The image is very important to him. He is an image person.
1: And will these images work?
4: Well, right now what we're seeing um, is a staccato presidency, where if he doesn't get what he wants on one side, he'll shift to another. Mm -hmm. Look, he changed his words about China because he needed China for North Korea because his advisors told him that. When he couldn't move, when he couldn't do Obamacare, he decided, I'm going to push on NAFTA. I'm just going to pretend something big is going to happen. And he scared the Canadians and the Mexicans. But nothing came of it. He promised the H-1B visa, the whole visa system would change. He couldn't get it done. He signs an executive order that really has very little effect. After a while, It's very possible that his base, which loves him at the moment, will start to see that nothing is actually happening. Right now, it's great TV. Can you sustain great TV for four years, enough to satisfy people who actually wanted real change? We'll see, but right now, it's basically a lot of light and very little action.
1: All right, on that note, we are gonna have to thank all of you. Fascinating conversation. We will definitely have you all back to see how it develops. Applicants for the U.S. Green Card Lottery, officially known as the Diversity Immigrant Visa Program, more than doubled between 2007 and 2017. The program provides up to 50,000 visas annually, drawn at random, to people from countries with generally low rates of recent immigration to the U.S. It brings me to my question, which nation had the most citizens apply for the green card lottery in fiscal year 2015, the year for which the most recent State Department data is available. Was it Ethiopia, Egypt, Uzbekistan, or Ghana? Stay tuned and we will tell you the correct answer. Instead of a book of the week, I want to recommend the podcast of this show. If you go to iTunes or wherever you find your favorite podcasts, just search Fareed Zakaria GPS and you'll find us. Then hit the subscribe button and you'll get us every week. That way, if you miss the show, you can listen. Better yet, recommend the GPS podcast to a millennial who probably doesn't watch so much TV and already knows where to find podcasts. And now for the last look. This week, China launched its second aircraft carrier, but its first homemade one. Its first such vessel, you may remember, was a rebuilt Soviet-era ship purchased from Ukraine. Not much use in a high-intensity conflict, according to the experts. This new one, which is expected to enter active service in 2020, was designed in China and built in the country's Dalian shipyard. It is a great improvement, but still has a ways to catch up with American technology. See that upward slope where the planes will take off? A military expert tells CNN it's to help the aircraft get into the air and stay there. Well, American ships have better technology than those so-called ski jumps. The American carriers have catapults to blast the planes off the carrier decks. Oh, and America currently operates 10 carriers with two more under construction. Nevertheless, this new carrier is an important milestone in China's quest for military status and respect. The correct answer to the GPS challenge question is D. Ghana, 1.73 million Ghanaians applied for the diversity immigrant visa in fiscal 2015, as Pew Research points out. That's more than 6% of the population of that country. Just 3,381 of the more than 1.7 million Ghanaian applicants actually won the lottery that year. All applicants' lottery's luck may run out one day soon. The diversity immigrant visa program currently faces elimination on the bills before both the House and the Senate. Thanks to all of you.
4: Now, streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com/slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.